Welcome back once again to At Home in Your Hymnal. This is Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline. We are privileged to serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. The purpose of our program, At Home in Your Hymnal, is so that you would be at home in your hymnal. Isn't that, uh, isn't that a stark revelation for this early morning, says Pastor? says what it means, and it means what it says. Yes, yes. We're not being deceptive here in any way, shape, or form. We have uh, taken many opportunities in this program to look at bits and pieces of uh, the hymnal so that you are at home with your hymnal. Specifically, we're looking at the Lutheran Service Book, the primary hymnal in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregations. And uh, we've talked about theology of worship. We've talked about certain uh, occasional services. We spent uh, the last several programs talking about not only the season of Easter, but also the three most holy days in the church year, the Triduum. So on episode nine, we started our look at divine service setting one. We continue that with episode 10, and uh, you can check all of these out at our archives, www.thecross957.org. But now that we have uh, taken that break, we're going to be back looking at Divine Service Setting 1. This is episode 15. We left off with Confession and Absolution, and if you will have your Lutheran Service Book open, to page 152. Now it says in big, bold letters at the top, service of the word. Well, pastor, what have we been doing up until this time if we haven't had a service of the word, that invocation, confession, and absolution? There's a lot of word of God stuff present in that. Uh, Help me understand this title, this heading, that now we are specifically talking about the service of the word. Well, there's three parts to a divine service. The first part is the part we've studied so far, and oftentimes this is called the preparatory rite, uh, and that concludes uh, the invocation, and it also has a confession and absolution. The second part, then, is the service of the Word, where uh, rather than a remembrance of baptism, which is the first means of grace, and that's what invocation brings to us. We are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what confession and absolution is, is the baptism at work in our daily lives, uh, drowning the old sinful nature so that the new man can arise to live before God. Uh, instead of focusing on baptism— Now we're moving to uh, the means of grace that is God's Word. And so in the service of the Word, we hear a lot about um, uh, the Scriptures. We sing the Scriptures. We pray the Scriptures. And then the third part that we'll get to eventually is the third means of grace, which is uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, and that's the service of the sacrament. And so in in that way, you see the service... uh, represent all three means of grace to bring those to us uh, in their different ways. The preparatory rite brings baptism, the service of the Word brings the Word, and the service of the sacrament brings the Lord's Supper. We've, uh, we've talked before about a rhythm and flow in the divine service. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. Uh, God speaks, the word of absolution to us. That's the final word in the preparatory rite or the preparatory service. Most uh, most Lutherans don't think of it that way because the divine service almost always begins with invocation, confession, and absolution. They don't see that as preparation. They just see that as a natural beginning to a Lutheran church service. But here we are, and... Uh, 
it would not be unusual. It would not be uh, a negative theologically in any way, shape, or uh, form if we started right here. If we started right here with the service of the word and had that preparatory part a completely separate service like they used to do back in the olden days. But here we are, service of the word. This is a a new unit, as you uh, aptly said. And then underneath of that, it says introit, psalm, or entrance hymn. So if you are using this as the beginning of your worship service the entrance hymn would be when the pastors uh, perhaps even with a processional this would be when the leaders of the worship service would enter in now i don't think most of our congregations use an entrance hymn at this point unless they're using this as a the beginning point of the service what is going on pastor when there is a procession in the church. We see this a lot of times with uh, uh, more significant or high feast festival days where we have a cross and candles and the pastors coming in and people stand up. Why? Why would we do something like that? Well, today's church is different than it was a long time ago. In the, um, in the old days, I guess you would say, churches were much larger. They were often cruciform in their shape, and the altar would have been right up in the front in the center of that cruciform area where the uh, the, the two parts of the church crossed. And so uh, you wouldn't have a room there just to hide in and to come out and begin your worship service in. You had to walk in. And, uh, and so that was kind of a common thing, that you would walk in, and as uh, the church grew and, and moved on. It included uh, bringing in a processional cross as a reminder of who we're worshiping. It involved uh, bringing in the, the candles and the light because these old churches didn't have uh, electric lights where you just flip a switch in the back. It was light by candles and light by oil lamps and things like that. Uh, and you also, uh, you're walking in and that's noisy on um, these bare uh, cement or uh, stone floors. And so you you sang to cover up the noise of the pastors walking in. Uh, you sang to cover up movement, and that's kind of what this intro it is. And so as the pastors are coming in to start the worship service, you sang. Uh, and then it, it kind of grew from there uh, where the preparatory rite in the, uh, the Lutheran church was often done in the back of the church where the baptismal font often was. And then, uh, as remember we talked about a minute ago, uh, the preparatory rite, confession, absolution, the invocation are reminders of baptism. And then the pastors would walk in uh, towards the altar in the pulpit to do the, the next part of the service. And once again, that uh, singing of the introit or the psalm or the entrance hymn covered up the movement uh, with the sound of singing. And so in some ways, everything that's happening is very practical because we just have to get up there to the altar area to conduct the service. And so how are we going to do that and what are we going to do to make that fit in with the general mood of the entire service? So there, there's a very practical aspect to everything that's going on here. And since we need some music, since we need something to cover up the movement or to make things go very, uh, uh, with that rhythm and flow, go very smoothly here, what better thing to do than to sing praise to God or to have God's word proclaim to us in song. That's really what's happening here. Yeah, and to give you an example of how music 
does such a great thing to fill space and to uh, emphasize what's going on. You can go on YouTube and you can search uh, the the end of the first Star Wars movie, you know, where Luke and Han and Chewbacca walk in and get their medals. Yes. When you watch that in the theater or on your DVD, there's music that plays the whole time. The whole time they're marching down that That's long right. aisle way. You can go on YouTube and you can find a video where there is no music. And you just uh, see them walking for a minute, and you're like, what's going on? This is awkward. It's uncomfortable. The music bridges the gap so that everything flows together well, and and uh, the mood is not lost in a long period of walking. Yes, for, for you youngsters, uh, he's referring to the end of Star Wars episode, uh, let's see. Four. Four? Yeah. Star Wars Episode Four. A New okay. Hope. A New Hope, yes. It was just Star Wars when I was a young punk and saw it in the movie theater in about 1975 or so. So that dates me. Um, it also, in this spot, uh, and you mentioned it just briefly, but in addition to an entrance hymn, this is also a spot where you can do an introit or a psalm. Now, uh, Pastor Murundi and I dedicated an entire program to the significance of psalms in our worship service, and so I don't want to belabor this point too much here. Uh, I believe that's episode five. You can check that out on the archives. But here at Good Shepherd, we have the tradition of using the introit. We've been doing this for about, oh, somewhere between 15 and 20 years, trying to incorporate more of God's Word and especially more of the Psalter, the 150 Psalms, into the worship service. The introit or a psalm at this particular point in the worship service. Pastor, thoughts on why this Word of God at this point in time? Well, it begins to uh, teach what the theme of the day is. It begins to focus us in on what the Scripture readings are going to be about and uh, to teach us whatever lesson we're going to learn. And it's good to begin the service that way so that we start to figure out what's going on and we start to look towards um, what God wants us to know in that particular week of the church here. And so we've done the confession absolution. Now we're going to start focusing on whatever the Word is going to teach us in the service of the Word. The very first thing we do is we look at the Psalms. The introits are kind of crafted uh, to uh, teach us whatever the main idea is. And so that's what we do. You tell people what you're going to tell them very first thing when you're giving a speech or a presentation, and that's what the intro it does. So we have a uh, an intro it, which is a portion or selected verses of Psalms. Ninety eight percent of the introits are psalm verses. You have occasionally a New Testament verse or a liturgical refrain, but uh, at least 98% are bits and pieces of the psalm. They are crafted, like you said. We spend a significant portion of uh, time looking at how that introit introduces the theme of the day when we do our weekly program, getting us ready for Sunday morning, Proclaiming the One. Again, you can check that out. It's one of our sister programs here at uh, K-N-N-A-L-P. But uh, the psalm of the day, we don't often use or incorporate the psalm of the day. I know many churches do. I know some pastors use this as a major basis for their sermon preparation, the crafting of the worship service, the picking of the hymns. Pastor, a couple of words on why a congregation or specifically a pastor would want to incorporate 
the specific psalm of the day into the worship service and maybe even right here at this point in the worship service? Well, uh, it has a history in the medieval church of the use of the introits. Those are something that's been passed down to us from the very early church. And in 1523, uh, Martin Luther in his Formula Missae uh, talks about those. And he says that's good that we sing the introits. Uh, but he says, you know, maybe it would be appropriate for us to sing the entire psalm and not just uh, a selected portion of it. And that's why we have that option of doing the introit or an entire psalm. And that comes out of Luther's mind. As a monk living in a monastery, uh, they went through and they chanted and sang all of the psalms uh, on a very regular basis, probably once at least every week. And so Luther's trying to bring that idea to uh, the congregation, not so much that we can become monks or, or act like we're living in a monastery, but how good is it for us to know what God's Word says and what it means? And what better place to learn that than in the Psalms, which is kind of the prayer book of the Bible. It teaches us how we ought to pray throughout the week. It teaches us what we ought to focus on in our lives. Uh, and then it also sets the stage for the rest of the divine service. The uh, the Psalms are a very forgotten book in our uh Christian age today to uh, to incorporate God's word in any way, shape, or form for the people of God is a good thing. And properly understood, the Psalms teach and are dripping with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. We need to take a short break. This is episode 15 of At Home in Your Hymnal. We're looking at Divine Service Setting 1. When we come back, we're going to look at the Kyrie on page 152 of LSB. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNA LP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. In uh, episode 15, we are looking at Divine Service Setting 1 in Lutheran Service Book. This is a continuation of a discussion that we began way back in episode 9. So if you go to the archive section of our website, www.thecross957.org, episode 9, episode 10, and then skip forward to episode 15 and following. This is our in-depth look at Divine Service Setting 1 in Lutheran Service Book, page 151 and following. In our earlier segment, we looked at the transition from the preparation rite, confession and absolution, to the service of the word. We talked about an entrance hymn, an introit, or a psalm, uh, and how those things incorporate into the worship service, set the stage for the worship service, are very practical as they cover movement that is going on in the worship service, how we are fed by God's word, and uh might even uh, have a procession and uh, lots of uh, fanfare as the pastors are walking in and we get ready to hear the Word of God and receive His gifts. But there's something uh, very, very significant that is uh, going on before we get to 
this joyous hymn of praise. We heard in our intro, this is the feast, one of the... Um, one of the distinctive markers of divine service setting one and divine service setting two. It's a different tune, but the words are very similar. Many people, when they hear this is the feast, they immediately think of divine service setting one. It's a, uh, a festive, joyous uh, thing that we sing, uh, and it's an amazing part of the worship service where we are praising God with God's word. But there's something that happens in between that introit psalm or entrance in, and here at Good Shepherd, we almost always do an introit. Before we sing a hymn of praise, after the introit, there comes a goofy little five-letter word called the Kyrie. Pastor, can you explain to us what a Kyrie is and what that Latin word means? Yeah, maybe we'll start with what the Latin word means, because it's actually uh, the Greek word there. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Kyrie. It's, it's the same in Latin and Greek, so. Right. The Kyrie is uh, the Greek word kurios, which means Lord, and in the New Testament, uh, it's what the the name of God is in the Greek language. Uh, it's a uh, word that fills in oftentimes the New Testament for the tetragrammaton in the Old Testament, which is uh, the Lord's name, I am that I am, uh, Yahweh. Uh, in your English Bible now, even if you open to any page in the Old Testament, you'll see a place where the word Lord is written in all cap letters. Uh, and that is this word here, uh, the tetragrammaton, Lord. And so this is a way of speaking to God. We call him Lord rather than using his proper name as a, a manner of respect. The Kyrie, then, uh, is uh, a prayer. It's the first prayer, in fact, of the service of the word. It's a prayer that is saying, Lord, have mercy, uh, Kyrie eleison in the Greek. It's a prayer that is encountered frequently in the scriptures. Uh, We have, for example, the Canaanite woman of Matthew 15. We have the ten lepers of Luke 17 and uh, countless other places where people who see Jesus, the thing that they cry out, the prayer that they say to him is, Lord, have mercy, Kyrie eleison. It's a uh, it's a prayer uh, asking for God to show mercy to us uh, in all of our necessities and in all of our troubles and in all of our struggles in this world. And it's a, a prayer that's been used in the church for a very, very, very long time. Uh, it's been used in the uh, the church all the way back. We have evidence uh, for a lady named. Agaria, uh, who made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem way back in the, I think, 400s A.D., and she records that at the church in Jerusalem, uh, they were using a prayer that, uh, Lord, have mercy, uh, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, all the way back then. And so it does have a lot of history and uh, tradition of use in the church, and that's because it comes right out of the Holy Scriptures. And uh, we'll see as we continue our walk through Divine Service Setting 1, some parts of the liturgy are ancient, like the Kyrie. Some parts of the liturgy are very new, like uh, 20th century. This is the feast. And everything in between, and that's the beautiful thing about the liturgy in general, is it is, it is extremely cross cultural with regard to peoples and places and times, and uh, it really unites us as one in Christ Jesus. So before we go any further, Pastor, uh, 
that word mercy, you know, there's a lot of church words that we throw around a lot, and we just assume people know what they mean. Two of the words that are often together are grace and mercy. Here we have Lord have mercy. Um, the way I have explained it in the past with regard to the understanding and the distinction between grace and mercy is like two sides of a coin. And I want to get your reaction uh, to this definition of mercy. Grace is when God gives us something we don't deserve. Flip that coin around. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. Don't give me what I deserve. Mercy. Your reaction to that definition? I think that that, um, that's a good way to help us think about it in English because, how do I say it? We don't don't know our uh, definitions of words specifically anymore. You know, there's lots of different words, and we just kind of assign the same meaning to them. And I think that's a good way to think about it is that God does do both of those things. He gives us uh, what we don't deserve, life, forgiveness of sins, uh, salvation, and he doesn't give us what we do deserve, which is eternal damnation and punishment. Instead, he gives that to Christ in our place, and I think that's a great way to think about this. Um, and when we see this in the scripture, uh, the the Canaanite woman who asks uh, mercy of Christ, the ten lepers who ask mercy of Christ, they really have no ground to stand on. Uh, the thing they do deserve is death and damnation and punishment, and yet they're still asking of God, in Jesus in this case, that he not do that for them. And in response to their prayer for mercy, God does show them grace. So that's a good way of thinking of it. The uh, uh, I just was reading in, uh, I believe it was Peeper, not too long ago, and that's a... Uh, uh, 19th century dogmatician in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, wrote a set of dogmatics, wonderful book. But he talked about when God gives mercy in the Scripture, this is an absolution. When God doesn't give us what we deserve, this is the forgiveness of sins. And I think that's a good thing for us to keep in mind as well. I don't want to cut us too short because we want to listen to the Kyrie in um, Lutheran Service Book Divine Service Setting 1, pages 152 and 153, the reference to uh, the Bible reference, this is one of the beautiful things about Lutheran Service Book. They always give a little Bible reference off in the right-hand column, and they list Mark 10, 27. And I want to read this section, and I'm going to read Mark 10, 46 to 52. The subtitle is Jesus Heals Blind Bartimaeus. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. That was Mark ten, forty six 
to 52. That is the Bible reference for the Kyrie that is listed in Divine Service Setting 1, pages 152 and 153. Before we listen to the Kyrie pastor, any comments on that particular verse that we just read? I think uh, Bartimaeus shows us the life of a Christian, continually praying for the mercy that is undeserved and expecting to receive it from God because of his care and compassion and mercy towards us. And so that's, you know, you see him there continually crying, Lord, have mercy upon me. And when we do this in the divine service, that's the same thing we do. We continually cry out to God, Lord, have mercy upon us. The life of a Christian crying out for mercy, forgiveness, life, and salvation. Your faith has made you well. Now, we we need to be careful here when we hear these passages. This was not some innate quality inside of Bartimaeus. It is the object of his faith that heals him, and the object of that faith is Jesus. So uh, I'm not Mr. Technology here. Uh, Pastor Moline is helping me very much. Uh, We are going to listen now to the Kyrie from Divine Service Setting 1, and about the first 10 seconds of what we're going to hear is a uh, copyright from uh, uh, Concordia Publishing House, and uh, uh, don't don't worry about that. We want to do that to make sure all of our bases are covered here, and then we'll get into the Kyrie. Divine Service Setting 1 in Lutheran Service Book was composed by Richard Hillert, Professor Emeritus at Concordia University, Chicago. This setting was previously included in both Lutheran Worship and Lutheran Book of Worship. In peace let us pray to the service setting one lutheran service book pages 152 and 153 pastor we have a rhythm and a flow that's going back and forth we have the pastor or the pastor's assistant singing a line and the congregation coming back with that refrain lord have mercy lord have mercy lord have mercy lord have mercy amen so the people are speaking the words that blind Bartimaeus and several of the other uh, people that we've talked about in Scripture. A few words about the lines that the pastor is saying, introducing this prayer, and then the people coming back. It's a petition, and then the people are responding. 
In peace, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God and for the unity of all, for this holy house and all who offer here their worship and praise. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. One word jumps out at me. Peace, peace, peace. What are we talking about here? Well, it is the word peace that is emphasized, at least in the first three petitions of this particular prayer. And it's a a prayer uh, for peace from God. And it's the same word then that Jesus uh, introduces himself to the disciples on the day of resurrection. Uh, It's a peace that means there's no longer conflict between us and God. And so that's kind of the basis of the peace. First off, uh, we have that peace, that first petition, uh, because Christ has been raised from the dead. The second one, uh, we have uh, peace for our salvation, same reason. And then we ask for that peace to be for the whole world. And so peace is the emphasis Professor there. And I apologize that we cut this segment a little bit short. Uh, we're uh, we're going to have to come back and touch a little bit on that Kyrie when we come back. And uh, don't change that dial. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. In hymn. peace let us pray to the at noon on KNNA.
Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, what you just heard is the Kyrie from Divine Service Setting 1, pages 152 and 153 in Lutheran Service Book. I apologize that I uh, abruptly cut us off in uh, segment 2. I completely lost track of time, so that's my bad. We need to spend a little more time talking about these individual petitions that seem to be building and building and building and building, and then we get a climb climax at the last one. We talked uh, at the end about how that word peace is primary in the first three petitions. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. For peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. Those first two. There's a difference with regard to those pieces uh, or that peace that we're talking about in each of that. First of all, we're talking about kind of a general state of peace that I, in peace, can actually come to God and pray to God. The second one is we're asking for peace from above to come to us for our salvation. Am I making a distinction where there is no difference here, Pastor, or is there something going on uh, in the wordplay between these first two petitions? No, I think um, the way that it is laid out here is that it starts with the fact, the statement that there is peace from God and that God is peace really incarnate in a way. Uh, And then it asks that peace be coming to us, and then it asks that peace to be brought to the world. And then it even changes its mind again here, not mind, but builds on it and says, uh, we want to pray especially for all those people here gathered in church. Uh, And so it it does, it kind of talks about all the different uh, circles of influence, you, I guess you could call it, where God's peace is delivered and brought about and uh, uh, given. And, and so we talk about each one of those, and it kind of builds in a particular direction. The uh, word that kind of jumped out at me the second time that I heard that is in that third petition, for the peace of the whole world. You know, we're, we're asking that this peace that comes from God, which is Jesus, which is the forgiveness of sins, would extend throughout the whole world. Um, you know, this gospel proclamation, the mission of the church, for the peace of the whole wor- world, for the well-being of the church of God. And then this next line, and for the unity of all. <clears throat> There are many, many criticisms that are leveled at the Lutheran Church. One of the criticisms is that the Lutheran Church, by their insistence on God's word in its truth and purity, is causing divisions in the church, and that we are a divisive church body, and that if we would stop this incessant need for doctrinal purity— and we could all get along, and there would be unity in the church and unity in the world, and it's all our fault because we care more about rules and doctrine than we do about people and unity. You've heard that, Pastor. Um, This is where we live and move as confessional Lutheran pastors. How would you respond to that, especially in light of the fact that we are praying here in this Kyrie for the unity of all? Are we praying against ourselves when we pray that prayer, or are we or the world looking at unity uh, backwards? 
Well, unity is an interesting thing because we do want to have unity. We want unity with the whole world as we pray here. But unity also necessarily means division. Uh, And so maybe, you know, we've used this example in our uh, At Home in Your Hymnal before. Um, Unity of Nebraska Cornhusker fans necessarily divides us from Iowa fans. A unity of uh, Saints, uh, New Orleans Saints fans, who that, necessarily who divides them from, uh, you know, Dallas Cowboys fans, or or who's your big rival, the ones you hate. We we have no rival because we are head and shoulders above. <laughs> no, we we hate Carolina, we hate Atlanta, we hate Tampa Bay, and we right. always, especially football wise, hate the Dallas Cowboys. That's a universal hatred. That's what I. That's why I guessed that one. Um, and so unity within a group necessarily divides from another, and. The assumption made by all those people who uh, declare that we're a hateful group and that if we just give up our doctrine, we would things would be better. The the assumption they make in saying that is that um, division from false doctrine and division from wrong teaching is a bad thing. It's not. God teaches us over and over again in the scriptures that we ought to be separated from the unbelievers and from false teachers and those who do not uphold all of God's word is true. And so we pray uh, at the same time that uh, the whole world would be united in the true teaching, and at the same time we're also keeping ourselves uh, isolated as best as humanly possible uh, from false teachers. And both those things can be upheld as true at the same time. It's, it's uh, amazing, too, that God's word does talk about division. And God's word teaches us that we should strive that there be no divisions among us. And God's Word also teaches us that you will always have divisions because this is the only way you can tell where the truth is at. So divisions are necessary on this side of heaven because we need to know where the truth is, God's Word and its truth and purity. And folks, that is the only thing worth fighting for and what we're praying for in this petition with regard to peace, peace in the church, peace for the whole world, is unity around Christ and his word. Pure word, pure doctrine, pure forgiveness, pure salvation. This is our fervent desire, and we are following the command and promise of our Lord and Savior Jesus when we pray in this way. So we've gotten bigger. We started out with a state of peace. We want this peace to be, grow and to get out. And now it comes back home again for this holy house and for all who offer here their worship and praise so that every individual worshiper would be filled with this peace that surpasses all understanding, which is Jesus crucified and risen for forgiveness, life and salvation. And everything seems to be building to a climax, that final petition is wrapping everything up and bringing it home. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. So, Pastor, we have three things that we're asking for. We're asking for help, we're asking to be saved, salvation, and we're asking for comfort, I guess we're asking for four things, sorry, and to be defended. But before we get to those four, Now we are addressing gracious Lord. 
We talked about how each one of these is, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. Don't give me what I deserve. And now we're calling God a gracious Lord. Is that a pious wish, or is God a gracious Lord? Well, it's the exact truth. God is a gracious Lord. He is a good God. Uh, he gives us his riches at Christ's expense. And and so it is a true statement for us to say that, which is why then uh, the very next word that the uh, church responds to this prayer is amen, which means yes, yes, it shall be so. Uh, and so we say amen. These things that uh, we just said are true, that God will help us, that he'll save us, that he'll comfort us, and that he'll defend us because he's gracious. What kind of help do we need? Uh, help on my ACT test? Uh, help to uh, kick smoking, uh, help to get along with my neighbor, uh, help to lose 10 pounds. What kind of help are we praying for here, Pastor? Well, yeah, those uh, would be things that we do need help with, uh, and yet they're kind of superficial things ultimately because um, if I get a good score on my ACT, I'm still going to be dead in 100 years. Uh, If I lose 10 pounds, uh, I'm still going to be dead in a hundred years. You know, a pleasant thought for you to consider this morning. Uh, but um, those are the minor things, and yet oftentimes that's what we think we ought to pray for, and we should. Uh, but the more important things are that we have faith that uh, Christ would keep us away from unfaith and defend us from the devil and our flesh and the sinful world. Uh, and so that's more of the things that we're asking for help for. Those are the more serious things where the rubber hits the road. We've talked about uh, salvation, and salvation is from God. Salvation is God's gift. Salvation is in and only in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That third word, or that third thing that we're praying for in that last petition, comfort. You know, when I think of comfort, um, I think of having a, a thermostat that I can adjust to make myself feel comfortable. I think of wrapping up with a blanket called a comforter on a cold Nebraska night. Those kind of creature comforts that we're all familiar with. Pastor, when we are praying to God for comfort, in addition to those superficial kind of creature comforts, what's the real comfort that we're after? Yeah, um, it's comfort that... As we plod through this sinful world and all the struggles that we have, a comfort that uh, gives us the ability to meet those needs, uh, those those challenges day by day, uh, a comfort that says we're in Christ's care and nothing can take us out of his hands, a comfort that says no matter what arises, uh, we will always belong to God. And, uh, and that's the, the comfort that really matters because every other comfort in this world could be taken away from us forcibly uh, or or even accidentally, you know. Uh, and so the comfort that Christ gives is the true comfort that overcomes anything this world can throw at it, the comfort that we have the promise of eternal life and that we'll always in God's care. And it's no coincidence that one of the names that we have for God the Holy Spirit is the Comforter whose job it is to bring us that very kind of comfort that you described through the means of grace, word, and sacrament. Last uh, little thought here, help save comfort and defend us. Uh, Who do I need defending from, Pastor? Sin, death, 
the sinful world, the power of the devil, all the things that are constantly seeking to lead us astray from the faith, uh, to lead us into eternal uh, hell and damnation, uh, things that are seeking to hurt our faith so that we aren't saved by Christ. We are constantly under attack. And that unholy trinity that you mentioned, the devil, the world, and our flesh, wants our soul, wants to set, uh, take our soul and have it with Satan for all eternity in hell. But Christ is victorious. He has overcome sin, death, and the grave for us. And we know that God does have mercy on us for the sake of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We need to take a short break. This is at home in your hymnal. We're looking at Divine Service Setting 1, the Lutheran Service Book. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. In our program, At Home in Your Hymnal, we take time to look at the various parts of God's Word. Sometimes we talk about a theology of worship or some specific parts of worship. We've done that in our past episodes. We are looking now at Divine Service Setting 1. We're doing an in-depth look at each part of the worship service, the theology behind it, how we do it, why we do it, so that you are at home in your hymnal, whether you are in the corporate worship services in your church or here at Good Shepherd, or whether you're using your ha- uh, hymnal at home for family devotions as well. In our opening segment of this episode 15, we looked at the transition from the preparatory service of invocation, confession, and absolution, transitioning to the service of the Word. The service of the Word then begins with the Kyrie. We spent uh, segments two and three taking an in-depth look at the Kyrie, pages 152 and 153 in Lutheran Service Book. And now, as we uh, move on, we have a section called Hymn of Praise. Now, this is a little bit differently worded here in Divine Service Setting 1 and 2 than it is in Divine Service Setting 3. Divine Service Setting 3 immediately goes to a Gloria and uh, long, rich liturgical history of singing the Gloria from Luke 2 at this particular point in the worship service. We have in Divine Service Setting 1, and setting two, this was introduced into Lutheran congregations with the introduction of um, Lutheran worship back in the late 1970s, we have an option. We have an option here under the general heading of a hymn of praise. And so, Pastor, uh, in this segment, I want to talk about that general 
hymn of praise that is sung. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the the stark contrast and the stark distinction between the two different hymn of praises that we have listed here in Divine Service Setting 1, and then that funky little rubric that says during Advent and Lent, the hymn of praise is omitted. So perhaps we can start with generally hymn of praise right here after the Kyrie. Well, a hymn of praise would be exactly what it says, a song uh, that praises the amazing things that God has done for us. And so maybe it builds off of the Kyrie, if you will. We've talked about how uh, we've asked God to have mercy on us and what that means. We talked about how uh, we ask God to be gracious to us and what that means. And we have also listed that uh, off the things we're praying for, peace and comfort and joy and defense and salvation and help and all these things. And uh, we pray and ask God that he would accomplish those things for us. And so, so are we wondering now, is God going to answer? this prayer? Is God not going to answer this prayer? Um, we are praying for God things here in this Kyrie that God has promised to give us. That's exactly the point, isn't it? Is that God does give us all those things we pray for. And really, that's the way we ought to pray. We ought not pray for things God doesn't promise. We should pray for the things God does promise. Prayer is reminding God of his promises. And really, more than reminding God, it's reminding us of the things God has promised. And so we ask for all these things in the Kyrie, and we finish that with, Amen. Yes, yes, it shall be so. That's the word of promise that, yes, God is going to do all those things we asked for. And since he's doing all those things we ask for in the Kyrie, we ought to return uh, the promises of God with a word of praise. And that's what we're doing in these two hymns. We're singing uh, all the great things that God promises to do for his people and how wonderful our God is, especially when compared with the other fake gods of this world, the God of Islam, the God of Mormonism, the God of Jehovah's Witnesses, and all the other fake gods that are out there. And so this rhythm and flow in our worship service is continuing. We pray that God would have mercy on us, and we acknowledge at the end of the prayer with our amen that God is a merciful God, God is a gracious God, and he will give us these things as he has promised. It's a done deal. And even though we may not have realized just like in the Psalms, when you have a, a psalm that prays for deliverance, and at the end, you're praying thanksgiving and praise because you know that God is going to give it because that's in his very nature. The same thing is happening here. Am I looking at this right? We yeah. pray for mercy. We pray for grace. We pray for peace. We know that God promises to give these things. And maybe even before we have actually personally realized them in our life, we are already praising God for the fact that he can, will, and does give us what we pray for. And even if we understand uh, the liturgy the correct way, we know that these are the things God is giving to us. We can be certain and sure of those things, which is why it's important that we spend time learning what we're doing in church and why. And so in a way, it's kind of like... Um, in Exodus chapters 14 and 15, when the people of Israel are led across the, the Red Sea on dry ground, 
what's the thing they do on the other side when Pharaoh is destroyed and they're safe and they know that they'll no longer be pursued by the Egyptians. They sit down on the shore and Moses and the people of Israel sing a song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. That's the same thing we're doing here in the divine service. We're not singing the same song. Uh, in this particular service, but we're still singing God's praises because of all the things he promises to do and has done in the person and work of Jesus for us. We even have a hymn, an Easter hymn, that uh, recounts that, Come ye faithful, raise the strain, uh, recounting that miraculous delivery of the children of Israel through the Red Sea waters. Pharaoh and all of his henchmen are dead, and connecting that to... Easter and Christ's victory over sin, death, and the grave for us. And on Easter, at the Easter vigil, we did the same thing. We had the the service of the scripture readings, and at the end of that, we sang the song of the three men in the fiery furnace, uh, which it isn't about them being in the fire or anything like that, but it's rather all you works of the Lord, bless the Lord, praise the Lord, uh, and it lists all the things in the world that ought to praise God because of the marvelous work he's done. I'm also uh, reminded of how Luther teaches us in the small catechism in the uh, section on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, uh, God doesn't give us these things because we pray for them. God gives these things even without our prayer, even to evil people. But we pray in this petition that we would know, that we would acknowledge, that we would believe it. So there's some of this going on with this Kyrie too. It is a constant reminder that whatever is going on in our life, God promises to be with us, to care for us, deliver us, defend us, comfort us. And for that reason, we sing a hymn of praise. Pastor, we have two very distinct hymn of praise options in divine service setting one, also two, we'll get to that a little later, but we have the Gloria, which is ancient, based on Luke 2 and John 1, and we have this is the feast, this is more modern, this is a 20th century uh, work from Revelation 5 and Revelation 19. A few comments on the options and the stark contrast between the two. Well, I'd say these are the two that we have decided as a church body to use. Um, They're both based upon Scripture, like you said. One is the song of the angels uh, at the birth of Christ, and one is the song of the angels uh, in heaven as John sees them uh, rejoicing at the eternal victory feast of God in heaven. Uh, There's other options that are songs of hymns of praise uh, from the Scriptures as well. These are the two that we have musical settings for, and so we have the options to sing either one uh, and to use the words of scriptures to sing God's praise for the things that he's done. There is kind of a difference. One of them uh, reflects uh, the the incarnation and Christ coming for the purpose of saving us. One of them uh, reflects more the victory that we have in Jesus and the hope of eternal life. They're both emphasizing different parts of what God's gospel good news does for us and so that's that's good and there's like i said we could really almost sing some of the other hymns of praise from scripture like we we mentioned moses and the uh the crossing of the red sea we mentioned uh the the song of the three men and there's a couple more on the back of the hymnal as well these are just the two that we have 
musical settings for in our hymnal. And repetition is the mother of all learning. Right. And so to teach the faith, uh, we use these ordinaries in the church on a regular basis. Here at Good Shepherd, we generally use this is the feast during the season of Easter, Yep. Uh, the resurrection focus, and at certain high festivals and high feast days because of its festive nature. About 60 to 70% of the time when you come here to Good Shepherd and you're, uh, we do Divine Service Setting 1, you will hear the Gloria. That is the default, that is the primary one, that is the one that teaches the faith, the message of the angels that uh, the Savior promised is here, and he has a name, and it's Jesus, and all praise and glory be to God. Um, in our, in our next episode, we're going to begin to look in detail. We'll listen to these. We'll pick them apart uh, piece by piece. And so I don't want to get started here and uh, you know leave you hanging. But, Pastor, there's a rubric in this uh, general comments under Hymn of Praise that says, During Advent and Lent, the Hymn of Praise is omitted. Why? Why don't we praise God during these times? Or do we still praise God during these times? Help me sort that out. We, we still do praise God at those times, but those seasons of the church here are penitential in nature, uh, meaning it is more focused on our sinful natures and how greatly we need God to save us uh, as a way to build up to those great high feast days of Christmas and Easter. And so the church sets aside some of those more... Um, joyous and festive parts of the divine service uh, to show our penitential nature during those seasons. It's the same reason then we uh, take and, and decorate the church in purple or blue for uh, these seasons of the church year. And then when Easter and Christmas come along, we put on the white and the gold again. Uh, we we kind of have this muted penitential nature that permeates everything we do uh, to show us how badly we need salvation and forgiveness and life from God. And, and so it's not that we're not praising God, it's that we're focusing uh, on a different thing for that time so that we might rejoice even all the more when we come to those feast days. We praise God a little bit differently. I know some pastors in uh, the divine service went during Advent and Lent, they might sing an Advent or Lent hymn here during this hymn of praise time. What we do here at Good Shepherd is we omit it completely. And so we go immediately from the uh, Kyrie to the collect uh, and the preface and the collect of the day. We'll get to that uh, in a couple of more episodes down the line, what that's all about. It's a prayer. But when you, when you worship with the divine service during Advent and Lent, there is a distinct feeling, if you're familiar with these services at all, there's a distinct feeling that something is missing. There's a gap. And it almost makes me, uh, it does make me, and I hope it makes others, hunger for that thing that is missing, and the anticipation is building for either Christmas or Easter. Uh, is that a fair way to look at things, Pastor? Yeah, definitely. When you're uh, using a liturgy, and, and everybody is, the question is, is it a liturgy that the church has created or a liturgy that is more modern and invented now? When you use a liturgy and something's not there, you notice it. And, and so it does make you hunger and thirst for that which is to come. 
With that, uh, we are going to bring this episode to a close. This is episode 15. We're looking at Divine Service Setting 1. When we come back next time with episode 16, we're going to be looking at some of the specifics with regard to these two hymn of praise options, the Gloria in Excelsis, and this is the feast. Until that time, my friends, stay connected to Christ and His church, hear His word, receive His gifts, and praise the maker and redeemer of your soul. Oh uh-huh.